Our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. And young Christians, young theologians, we'll start with you this morning. I'm not going to explain to you much of what I want you to listen for. I just want you to pay attention. What is the one thing? You'll hear it, but you've got to listen close. What is the one thing? See if you can find it. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. O Lord Jesus, we need your gospel again. And you are so good to give it in so many different ways, in so many different pronouncements. Your gospel was given to us this morning in the strange regulations and instructions from the book of Leviticus, God is a holy God and will lift His people to be holy with Him. And Jesus is the burnt sacrifice, the one consumed by the wrath of God the judge for our sin. And the Holy Spirit is the fire that burns within us, the fire of praise and observance that never goes out and wakes us from our stupor and our stammering and our slumber. And now, O Lord Jesus, from these verses in the letter of your servant to the church, give to us clearly your gospel again. Don't allow us to be distracted and busied with trinkets. Give to us instead the jewel of the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things in the name of the one who is the Father's greatest pleasure and who makes us the Father's great pleasure. 
Give to us all of this. We ask in your name. Amen. Be seated. It was at the running of the annual field day at our elementary school that the controversy broke out. The event was the three-legged race. The teams were tied together and lined up at the starting line. On your marks, the racers squatted. Get set. They held the position and looked to the far end of the course and the turnaround point to make the home stretch. Go, and the racers sped off in that gracefully ungraceful way that can only be the three-legged race. It was a close contest. Two teams ran neck and neck, and then in the closing strides, one team got tangled in their own legs, and the other team pulled ahead, and that's where my Jennifer got involved That's where she made her protest. She debated with the judge, and it was shades of McEnroe at Wimbledon. (laughs) You cannot be serious. You don't tie the legs of the runners in the three-legged race at the knee. You tie them at the ankle. Everyone knows that. You're a disgrace to the sport. He was no real sporting official to speak of, but the judge was a man of singular authority So he called the race final, and he awarded the ribbons. But Jennifer did have a point. The racers were poorly tied, making the race out of time, out of sync, out of step. And the racers were rendered to pull against each other instead of pulling with each other. And that's exactly the image Paul uses in this part of the letter. You are tied to Christ and not poorly tied. But the question and the dilemma that Paul raises for us is, why is it then that so many Christians do not run in step with Jesus? Why is it that they turn life into a rumbling, rambling tug of war, Jesus pulling in the direction of His gospel and the glory of God, and us pulling in every other direction imaginable. The miracle of God's activity with humanity and the miracle that Paul is describing in this passage is that God in the work of Jesus the Son has bound us to Himself. He has tied us to Himself. We are joined to Him. John Calvin's word for this was that we participate in the work of Christ, in the life of Christ, in all the effects and the outcomes of His life and His work. But Paul opens the passage with a discouraging but a necessary notion. Set free from the law, set free from saving ourselves, set free from keeping our own lives, saved by grace, Why do we so often pull against the one who has tied us to himself? What do we say then, Paul begins, that we go on sinning that grace may abound? Ridiculous. 
is the way we would translate it. Foolish. That's not grace. And it's not grace to pretend that we don't sin either. Grace is more than both of those two. Grace means tied to Jesus in love and in love wanting to move with Him. So Paul lays out his very simple and his helpfully repetitive argument in the passage. You are joined to Jesus and that means one thing. And here is a glimpse of that one thing. You are baptized. Baptism, rather, is no mere empty rite. It's not simply an empty ceremony. It is a theological sign filled with theological meaning that in turn assigns to us and puts upon us a theological meaning. Baptism testifies to our hearts that Christ is for us. And Paul says it here. We are baptized into Christ. Literally, we are His and we have been brought into such a unique closeness with Him through the Gospel that we can't think of ourselves as being apart from Him, separate from Him. And God never thinks of us as separate from Him. What He is, we are becoming. That's the promise. What is His is ours. That's the promise. Because of who He is, A cosmic change has come upon us. Our entire universe and existence is being rearranged. That's the promise. The old way, the way of the garden, where we don't believe that God loves us, where we don't believe that God is good, where we don't believe His Word is true, and so we listen to the lies of our own hearts instead of listening to His sonnets of love. The old way of the garden, where we don't believe that God knows us and truly knows what's best for us, where we don't believe that He is beautiful, and so there must be some other beauty out there for us to find and drag home for ourselves. That old way doesn't fit us anymore. I go to my closet sometimes and I pull out things to wear and I put them on and I look in the mirror and they don't fit. Sometimes they're too big and I look at the tag and inside the tag says, size large. I'm 145 pounds. I've only ever been 145 pounds. I've never been a large of anything. Where did I ever get such a false estimate of myself? Or sometimes I put them on and they're too small. I've outgrown them somehow. Why in the world am I holding on to them? And baptism is the gospel mirror that says, the old way of the garden doesn't fit you anymore. 
A Savior has been sent for you. And you're being dressed in new garments, garments tailored to you. You're being dressed in the garments that Jesus Himself wears. You are joined to Jesus, and that means one thing. And here is just a glimpse of that one thing. We have died with Christ. Because Jesus has died for our sin, we get to die to our sin. But you realize that we have another approach to all of this. We just ignore our sin. We pretend that it's not really there. We pretend that it's not really a threat. It's no true enemy. We treat our sin as if it's merely a minor inconvenience or a nuisance. Jennifer and I were driving together last week, and I looked out the window on my side of the car, and I couldn't believe what I saw. And I said to her, get a load of this chick. In the lane right next to ours, there was a young girl in a car, and she was driving fast. And she had earphones in her ears. She was listening to her iPod. And she had leaned forward in her seat and was sitting up to apply lipstick using the rearview mirror. And her back tire was gone. It had blown out. And she was driving on the spare donut, which was designed not to move you across town, but to get you to the nearest service station. And I said, she's a fatality waiting to happen. And that's our sin. The condition of our sin is every bit as deadly as that. And it's worse than that even. Because in our sin, we have gone so far as to spray paint the windows black. Can't see a thing. And we've disabled the power steering and cut the brake lines and dropped a brick on the gas pedal. And it's inevitable that we're going to end up in a pile of twisted metal and damage. That's where our sin carries us and takes us. But the good news is Jesus inserts himself into our lives. He jumps into our car and he makes himself our fatality. And we have died through Jesus to our own fatality is what the text tells us. But this is very important. The solution to our sin is not denying our sin. And you're going to have friends who tell you different. The solution to our sin is not ignoring our sin. And you'll have well-meaning friends who will try to convince you otherwise. The solution to our sin is answering our sin with the amazing work of Christ. And the potent word in the passage appears in verse 7. Before we get there, Paul moves toward verse 7 by saying, Jesus was crucified for the old self. That old Adam self with its compulsion to push away from the perfect love of the one who made us and knows us. And that old self has died with Christ by faith. And then in verse 7, Paul writes, One who has died has been justified from sin. Many of our translations say, have been set free. But that's not the word in Greek. The word is actually justified. The indictment of our guilt has been put to an end in the crucifixion of Jesus. So the sentence of our bondage and imprisonment and enslavement to sin 
have ended as well. If our guilt in sin is depleted, then it only stands to make sense that the power of our sin has been deprived and frustrated too. Paul is saying the death of Christ is your verdict of innocence, but it's also your prison cell being opened. It's important to see that justification is both of these things for us. It is the legal declaration, and it's also the gift of liberation. It is the judge smiling upon us because of the death of the Son and saying, there are no charges against you anymore. No accusations. There is no case against you. The entire thing has been put to rest. But it's also our being escorted out of the prison house. And justified, according to verses 6 and 7, means that we are set free because we have died to the old way, the old self, the Adamic compulsions with Christ by faith. You are joined to Jesus. And that means one thing, says Paul, and here is the last glimpse. You have been raised with Christ. He rose for you and you rose with Him. He walked out of your tomb and you followed Him out. Death could not hold Him and death cannot hold you now. And the heavy stone will not roll over the mouth of the tomb and close you in. You cannot be locked away in your guilt and the power of sin anymore. The hold has been broken. My favorite film right now is a film called Red Belt. Remember, I don't recommend films to you. I just mention them vaguely. And then your wisdom, your maturity and discretion allows you to do with them what you will. Red Belt is a film about a jiu-jitsu master. And in the opening scene, he's conducting a class in his academy. And two students are sparring. And one student has the other student in a stranglehold. And the jiu-jitsu master is teaching his struggling student in the midst of his discomfort. In the midst of his being pinned. There is no situation you cannot escape from. You know the escape. You know the escape. There's always an escape. There is no situation you cannot escape from. And do you realize that is the good news of the resurrection? If Jesus has walked out of the tomb and brought you out of the tomb with His power and His authority, there is no vice grip Death can place on you. There is no hold of sin that can't be broken. I don't know what you'll face at the end of the morning. I have no idea what's waiting to ambush you later today or tonight. I couldn't begin to fathom what you'll face in the coming week. But you need to realize that in Christ who is risen, there is always an escape. In Jesus who is risen, He is your escape. Joined to Jesus means one thing. No more glimpses. Here it is. Here is the one thing. Joined to Jesus means because Jesus fights our sin, we fight our sin. 
That's really Paul's entire argument in this section of this chapter. Jesus fights our sin and joined to him, we fight our sin along with him. The crucifixion was a holy fight. The resurrection was a holy fight. Baptism is the mark that means the holy fight is now being waged inside of us. What Jesus fights against, we fight against. What Jesus fights for, we fight for with Him. And by the way, none of this means that we aren't troubled by our sin any longer. None of this means that we don't still sin. It doesn't mean that our sin isn't still active and aggressive and mean. It doesn't mean that our sin doesn't still fight dirty and that sometimes we let ourselves be tricked and duped and seduced and sometimes we allow ourselves to be ambushed and bullied and overcome. It just means that our disposition towards sin, our propensity towards sin, that old Adam nature, it's not unchallenged anymore. It means now we have a fight to put up where we had no fight before. It's not one-sided anymore. Instead of sin being our troubler, because of the works of Jesus, we are sin's troublers. We're bad news to sin now, is what Paul is saying. But I don't want you to be naive about this, as people often are. We have visitors who come to New St. Peter's and they object strongly to our confession of sin. And they mean well, and they say, why confess our sins? Jesus has conquered and defeated our sins at the cross. And yes, the statement they make is true, but the application they draw from it is not. Jesus has overpowered our sin, but he hasn't entirely driven our sin away. He hasn't taken its presence away. My sin still terrorizes me every day. My sin was waiting for me when I got up. My sin needed to be confessed first thing this morning. Some of our own folks, some of our own members who have been with us from the start say, I don't want to talk about my sin anymore. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to speak of it. I don't want to have to face it. It's too depressing. It's too demanding. I understand. I just want you to understand that ignoring it doesn't make it go away. But I will tell you this, your sin loves it when you pretend it's not there. Because that's when you give it free reign. That's when you let it do whatever it wants to do. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but Paul says it's going to be a fight. And he uses fight language at the end of this section of chapter 6, especially in verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Stand up to it. Oppose it, he's saying. Don't let it make you obey your passions, your ungodly passions. It can't make you, Paul is saying. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't be intimidated. Don't be threatened. Don't go along with it. Don't surrender. Don't tap out. 
but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You're going to have to move against sin now, Paul says. And it wasn't easy when Jesus opposed sin in our world, and it's not going to be easy for you either. And then he closes the section with these words, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin doesn't have a fighting chance against those who are joined to Christ Jesus. It can't stand up to those who stand up in Christ. I'm sorry to tell you, it's going to be a fight. It's always going to fight. But I'm glad to tell you, it's not a losing fight. It's only a losing fight when you willingly forget that Jesus is good which is really the entire length and breadth and height of the Christian life. The Christian life is nothing more than the struggle to believe that Jesus is as good as he says he is. But we forget. We often allow ourselves and convince ourselves to forget. So let's not forget now. Jesus is good. And mysteriously, he shows his enduring goodness, not by ridding us of sin, but by allowing us to oppose it and to fight it with him. I suppose he could have taken it away altogether, but he didn't. He decided to let you feel his goodness even more closely and more intimately. He decided to let you feel his goodness and to be convinced of it by allowing you to grow in his nature. And sharing his nature, you will reject Adam's rejection. And you will embrace all the things that Christ is calling you to. And don't forget this either. You're joined to the one who cannot lose. Paul says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. That's verse 9. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then in verse 14, he takes it one step further. And because you're joined to him, sin will have no dominion over you. You're joined to the one who will prevail in you out of goodness and love. And that means the fight he gives you with your sin should be a joy. It's only a losing fight when we stop fighting. But that's like leaving your doors unlocked when you go to bed at night. And disabling your alarm system and posting a sign in the front yard that says, Thieves and criminals welcome. Come in. Do whatever you find to do. That's what you do to yourself and to your family and to your church family when you stop fighting. This week, our Crime Watch sent out an email alert. It was very simple, very short, very clear. It said, we got him. We got the guy in the black pickup truck who's been trolling schoolyards and trying to convince kids to get in the cab and go with him. We got him. An arrest was made because you watched and you took down his license plate number and you called law enforcement officials with descriptions, and you never let your vigilance turn loose. We got him. 
And all week, there's been this pulsing sense of relief and rejoicing through our neighborhood and almost, almost a taunting. There's this sense of, send the next predator, we're ready now. We know what to do now. And that's where Jesus has given to you the strange but beautiful calling to fight. That's why you don't pretend your sin isn't a problem. And you just stop talking about it because it's inconvenient and it's difficult. And that's why you never stop fighting. You may not like to think about it. You may not like to admit it. But when you do this, you're substituting false joy for the joy that Jesus has in store for you. That's a bad trade. It's tragic because Jesus delights to bring the body of our sin to nothing, as the passage says. And he wants you to feel it. And he means for you to share in that same delight with him. But you'll never experience this if you don't fight. It's only a losing fight when we fight with our own strength. And I think that's why people forget that Jesus is good and why they stop fighting altogether and admitting the problem of sin. We try to fight in our own strength and it's always a beat down. We never win against it that way. You can't fight in your own strength because our sin is our sin. It's a part of us. It's a part of our nature. So we need the one who has no sin in his nature to fight in us with his strength. And that's why confession is such an important practice for us. This is why we confess publicly and privately. This is why we repent publicly and privately. And confessing, we're saying to Jesus, let me see my sin the way you see my sin. Let me feel about my sin the way you feel about my sin. Let me speak of my sin the way you speak of it. Let me oppose it the way you oppose it. I no longer want to walk with Adam. I now want to cling to Jesus and follow after him. I want to be publicly seen deserting my sin. I want to be publicly seen as walking in the newness in life that Paul describes in verse 4. And I'll tell you this too. Confessing our sin and repenting of our sin, as difficult as it can be sometimes, it is the only thing that is as aggressive and rough toward your sin as your sin is toward you. Joined to Jesus means one thing. Because He fights our sin, we fight our sin. It just isn't a losing fight. Skeptics, do you feel the chains and the weight of your sin? Do you feel your inability to throw them off? Do you need to die to your old life, your current life? And do you need to be raised to a new life, a life that worships and trusts and glorifies God? Then believe in Jesus. That's where you'll have all of these things. Every other religion is a reinvention of the self. But this is different. This is no reinvention of our own. This is a dying to who we are in sin. And it's a being reborn in who Christ means for us to be. This is a 
being set free. Believe in Jesus and you'll have all of this. I want to tell you the story of how our church got its name. I don't tell you this story often enough. I should tell you more. It was eight years ago at this time of year. Jennifer and I were in Bermuda for Thanksgiving visiting with friends. And one day we set out to explore the hamlets, the villages on the island. And we pulled into the hamlet at the far north end of the island. St. George was the name of the place. As soon as we entered the limits of the village, we saw that up on a hill there was an old stately church sitting there. So we got out of the car and we ran up the thousands of steps to have a look inside the church. Nothing too impressive. Just an old church, smelled as old as Anglicanism. Spent a few silent moments looking around, and then we walked out the side door into the cemetery in the churchyard. And we exited the churchyard by the back gate. We were walking down the back side of the hill behind the church. And for some reason, I turned around to look back up the hill, and I gasped. Oh, wow. And Jennifer turned to see what I had seen. What is it, she said. So I pointed. On the steeple of the church, there was a weather vane. And perched on the weather vane was an iron rooster frozen in a violent crow. Strange symbol for a church to take for itself except for the fact that the name of the place was St. Peter's. Still, it's a strange symbol for a church to take for itself, because usually when churches name themselves after Peter, they take as their designating symbol the symbol of Peter's authority and power, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But this group of Christians was different. They had identified themselves with Peter's Weakness, and they took as their symbol the rooster who caught Peter in his sin. That church was saying, We're just like Peter. We need Jesus like Peter needed Jesus. We're just like Peter. We are loved by Jesus in the same way Peter was. And immediately I knew this was a group of Christians I could identify with because I'm just like Peter. It was a sermon in still life. And I was so moved by it, I stole it all. I took the name. That's why we're named for Peter. That's the story of our church. We took the symbol. The rooster's on the cover of your bulletins. Peter's story is the story of our church. That's the only story we're ever going to have. It's the only story there is for us. It doesn't matter who sticks around to help build this church and learn and grow in the ministry that Jesus has given to this church in this city. It doesn't matter. People come and go all the time. It doesn't matter if you make it through the next week as a member of this church or if you feel compelled to go find something better, something more intriguing, something more impressive, something more immediately satisfying, maybe something entertaining, maybe something easier, something 
with a gimmick. It doesn't matter because the story won't change. The story is always the same. And none of us can rewrite it. We are just like Peter. We are doubters and deniers of Jesus. We are failures at godliness and righteousness and faithfulness. We are deserters of His perfect love and His gospel. But we're just like Peter in another way. We are joined to Jesus and we have died with Him and we have been raised with Him and now our happy work is the fight with ourselves. Our happy work is the fight with our sin. Fight with joy. If you have ears to hear, hear. Lord Jesus, our story is Peter's story. But we would love to rewrite it and see ourselves as very different people. We would love to say, no, Lord, we're not the ones who would ever desert you, just as Peter said, and then he deserted like all the others. We're the ones who would say, no, Lord, we would, we would never think of failing you, doubting you, denying you, and just like Peter, we do it daily. But with your gospel, you restore us and join to you, you enlist us in the happy fight. I'm convinced you will never bless our church if we stop talking about our sin. I don't care what pressure comes if we are not honest about our sin and our need for Christ. There is no ministry here at all. But I'm also convinced that as ominous and looming as our sin seems and feels sometimes, the grace of Jesus is greater. The work of Jesus fighting with us and in us and through us is far greater. This is no message of discouragement. It's the message of victory and joy but the fight is still messy and the fight is still hard and it's still bloody. It's just beautiful. So help us to share and grow in your nature. And in this, we will know your goodness. Oh Lord, grant us the strange grace and maturity of the holy fight. And we will be glad. We ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.